everybody, welcome to Secondhand Stories. I'm your host, Jim Zabo. Thanks as always for choosing to slow down and listen up with us for this and every episode. This has really been more successful than I was expecting it to be, and we appreciate all of our listeners and our storytellers. Today's episode was meant to be about empathy. I think it's close, but maybe more accurately described as one person getting some real insight into another person's life, for better or for worse. First up, we have Eating Spaghetti in Brooklyn, 1978, by Sarah McElwain. Sarah sometimes goes by Sally, and I'm going to interchange them throughout her bio just to be a little confusing. Sarah is one of the hosts of Writers Read NYC, a group that has been providing venues for writers at clubs in Greenwich Village for the past 13 years. She loves listening to writers, fiction, memoirists, and poets read their work aloud. Sally reads everything that she writes over and over, and is the most helpful part of her process. As a teacher at the writer's studio, Sarah encourages her tutorial students to do the same. Those who read their work aloud, or sometimes compose it by dictating, or what she calls typing out loud, have the most success in discovering their voices. Well, if that wasn't an endorsement for this podcast and what it stands for, then I don't know what is. Here is Sarah Sally McElwain reading her own story, Eating Spaghetti in Brooklyn, 1978. Eating Spaghetti in Brooklyn, 1978. It was almost dark when I left the theater. Anne! Someone called my name. I froze. For some reason, I didn't recognize her at first, even though she looked the same. The tallest person in the crowd, with a face that could have modeled for the Statue of Liberty, but with black curly hair and no spiked crown. If Federica had a fault, it's that she's too grabby. Reaching across the velvet rope, she pulled me over. I can't believe it. What are you doing here? I live here, I said. Cool, she said. Call me tomorrow. Let's hang out. Taking a business card out of her bag, she handed it to me. I looked at the card. Federica Maria Spinelli, centered in an elegant script, like a Victorian calling card, over her phone number. Around that, she'd hand-lettered her many skills. Scenic designer, stage manager, sculptor, photographer, and other things that were more suspect. Singer, dancer, caterer? This is my brother Ralph, she said, as he appeared with two tickets. If Federica was the Statue of Liberty, then Ralph Spinelli was the Statue of David. This is Anne. Yo, Anne, he said. The line began to move. Tapping her magenta fingernail on her phone number, Federica repeated, Call me. Definitely call me tomorrow. I will, I promised. Imagine the city as a giant comic book. Subway car panels painted by kids sending messages down from the Bronx. It seemed important to me that the tools used to create graffiti determined its look, the spray can and magic marker. Without the availability of cheap aerosol enamel, primarily used for auto body repair, and black chisel tip industrial markers, would graffiti art ever have existed, if art was how you saw it? Federica mocked graffiti. Anyone can go fu-fu-fu, she said, crooking her index finger on an imaginary spray can button. The first car on the Uptown 6 train to the Bronx provided the best view of the painted tunnels. Unlike cave art, these were not single images created with pigment and stick. Illuminated in the subway car's headlights were miles of high-gloss spray can markings in rhythmic layered patterns. Part of the wonder was the ubiquity. We are everywhere, it said and the danger. Kids with aerosol cans were getting killed in these tunnels, riding the tops of subway cars, or getting electrocuted by the third rail. Sometimes I got out and walked around the Bronx to look at the murals commemorating the deaths of these boys. Religious images sprayed on the walls of bodegas over sidewalk altars with confirmation and prom photos, saints' candles, teddy bears, favorite t-shirts, race cars, candy bars, and cans of soda for the afterlife. Federica never accompanied me on these trips up to the Bronx. She called graffiti ghetto art, 
and Ralph declared it vandalism. Graffiti was the enemy of ironwork. It was impossible to remove, and it was punishable by baseball bat. Benelli and Son Ironworks was proud of the fact that there was no graffiti on their North Brooklyn block. Federica invited me to Sunday dinner to her family's house in Brooklyn. Sunday dinner at my family's house in East Ealing, Connecticut was formal. We ate in the dining room every night, but on Sundays my father wore a tie and tweed jacket with leather elbow patches and carved a roast at the table, parceling out the meat first to any guests, then to my mother and himself, and finally to my sisters and me. During the week our mother prepared our plates in the kitchen, then summoned us to carry them into the dining room, where we waited for her to sit down with her glass of wine and take the first bite, the hostess bite, before we were allowed to pick up our forks. I decided to wear my gray wool sweater and black skirt. After stopping at the mini-mart on 2nd Avenue to buy flowers, I got on the L train at 14th Street and took it to the Bedford Avenue stop. I kept thinking I knew Brooklyn, but it was huge and unknowable, with neighborhoods that I'd never imagined before. Walking a few blocks north to a light manufacturing zone, mixed in with a body shop and an auto parts store, I saw a brick three-family house next to Spinelli and Son Ironworks on the corner. Federica had warned me about what she called the Mary in the bathtub in the front yard. The way she described it, I'd imagined a chipped porcelain tub half submerged in the grass but it was a small blue statue in a molded shell surrounded by white stones and a cross. Her older brother Ralph was sitting on the front steps. Was there a more gorgeous man in all five boroughs? Whenever my gay friends tell me stories about how they first knew they were queer, Rock Hudson, James Dean, Haley Mills, I think of the blacksmith. My erotic flame was ignited for the first time on a fifth grade trip to Old Sturbridge Village. When I saw the blacksmith, my heart started pounding. Watching him forge a horseshoe in the fire did strange new things to my body. My focus narrowed, blocking out everything around me except the bulging, sweaty biceps of the male of the species. After the rest of the class filed out to the stocks and pillory, I continued to gape, mouth open, breath coming out in short, embarrassing gasps. The ring of the hammer on the metal, the red of the fire, the leather apron, were all still deeply imprinted in me, as arousing as the erotic smell of bacon cooking. These same sensations flooded my body, as I imagined Ralph Spinelli in the ironworks next door, forging fire escapes. Yo, Fetty called. Your friend is here. Blushing, I looked around the Spinelli's narrow lot. The blue virgin on one side, an American flag on a pole on the other. Behind that, a grape arbor and a garden with some vegetables I recognized, tomatoes and peppers and some other green things that were new to me. Come on inside, yelled Federica from the side door. She was wearing a baggy t-shirt and no makeup, leading me through a long, narrow house with many dark rooms into the kitchen where all the activity was taking place. Meet my mother. I thought Federica was joking when she'd said that her mother suffered from horror vacui, a fear of empty space. It was an art school term used to describe the decorative arts of South Sea Islanders facing the vast ocean, or the obsessive drawings of mental patients. But now I saw what she meant. No inch of the kitchen had been left undecorated. The flower-printed walls were covered with religious paintings and calendars, shelves and counters crammed with ceramic figurines and saint candles. The effect was suffocating. Here, Ma, these are for you, Federica yelled. Turning from the stove, 
wearing a sleeveless house dress, Mrs. Spinelli wiped her hands on her apron. She was tiny, with creamy olive skin and huge dark eyes. I saw where Ralph and Federica got their looks. Usually features become more refined with later generations. Noses less extreme, jaws less defined. But in the case of Ralph and Federica, the features they shared with their mother, the straight flared nose, heavily lidded eyes and curved mouth, were all more refined on her. These same features expanded on their bigger bodies looked like they belonged to an earlier generation. I handed Mrs. Spinelli the paper cone of flowers. Barely glancing at me, she quickly unwrapped the dozen ruffle-edged pink tulips, filled a jar with water, and stuck them on a windowsill already full of plastic flowers and returned to her cooking. It's nothing personal, said Federica in a loud voice, making sure that her mother heard. She just doesn't like you because you're not Italian. She only likes people who are Italian. Mr. Spinelli looked up from his newspaper. If Federica and Ralph got their good looks from their mother, they got their size from their father. Even seated, he was a giant with silver hair, broad shoulders, and a beat-up face. That's my pop, said Federica. None of this Mr. business. Call me Al. He pointed to a chair. Come, sit. So you're Federica's art school friend? Sitting down next to him at the kitchen table, I nodded. I had lost the power of speech. In an uncomfortable situation, I became mute, unlike Federica, who could talk her way out of anything. She rescued me. Yeah, Al. She can call me Al, not you. Pointing at Federica, there was a lot of finger pointing in this family. Rolling her eyes, Federica sat down and sighed. See what I mean? Aunt Rose and Uncle Lou came into the kitchen, followed by two even older people, Nani and Poppy, who barely noticed me. Finally, Ralph slid in at the end of the table. A platter of antipasto was passed around. Al speared roasted peppers, a hunk of mozzarella, and thin slices of salami onto my plate. Federica filled my glass with red wine. I wondered if someone was going to say grace. My family was Unitarian and only said grace on holidays. Aunt Rose and Nani crossed themselves, but everyone else dug right in. I unfolded my napkin and put it in my lap. Why was Mrs. Spinelli standing by the sink with a plate? I looked around the table. Was I sitting in her seat? Eat up, said Al. I picked up my fork. The Spinellis roasted their own red peppers and marinated them in olive oil. They were the best thing I had ever tasted. I drank some warm red wine. The kitchen was hot and steamy. I noticed everyone else was wearing t-shirts or sleeveless house dresses. Looking at Ralph in his blue local iron workers union t-shirt made me blush again and I started sweating. Beads of clammy perspiration rolled down the sides of my body, pooling in the waistband of my black skirt. My gray wool sweater started to stink. My antipasto plate was removed, and Al set a plate of spaghetti in front of me. It smelled delicious. Homegrown tomatoes, fresh basil and garlic, which I hope masked the smell of my stinky sweater. I picked up my knife and fork. What's she doing, whispered Nani. Shh, hissed Aunt Rose. She's cutting her spaghetti, said Nani. All eyes were on me. The silence was finally broken by Poppy's rich belch. Vincent, for God's sake, she'll think we're animals. Across the table, Federica rolled her eyes. Ralph was laughing. I looked down at my plate cheeks burning. What do you mean, shouted Poppy, napkin tied around his neck to protect his white undershirt. In Turkey, it's a mark of respect. 
Nudging me with his elbow, he showed me how to twirl a compact bite into a spoon with my fork. I had lost the power of speech, but not my manual skills. I managed to neatly finish my spaghetti using Poppy's technique. Federica poured more warm red wine into my glass and made a face at it from across the table. I understood now that her insistence on cold white wine at the bar was intended as a small rebellion against her family. Another plate was put down in front of me. I thought the pasta was the dinner. I didn't know about Il Segundi, chicken cacciatore. I unbuttoned the waistband of my skirt. After that, there was even more food, coffee and cannolis from Vigneros. I ate more that afternoon at the Spinelli's kitchen table than I thought humanly possible. Ralph insisted on giving me a ride home on his way over to Jersey. I got in the black Spinelli and Son Ironworks truck with the fistful of Lightning Bolts logo, painted in yellow on the side, worrying about what we would talk about. But Frank Sinatra had just come out with Trilogy, and Ralph blasted New York, New York on his sound system as we zoomed across the Williamsburg Bridge at twilight. Back in Manhattan, I mutely pointed to a corner on the Bowery for Ralph to let me off. You sure, he asked, shaking his head, looking around the sketchy neighborhood. I could only nod, and my power of speech would not be fully restored until Monday. Our second story today is called Intrusion by Gary Beck. Gary Beck has spent most of his adult life as a theater director and as an art dealer when he couldn't make a living in theater. He has 11 published chapter books and three more accepted for publication. His poetry collections include Days of Destruction, Sky of Press, Expectations, Rogue Scholars Press, Dawn in Cities, Assault on Nature, Songs of a Clerk, Civilized Ways, Displays, Perceptions, Winter Goose Publishing, Fault Lines, Tremors, Perturbations, Rude Awakenings, and The Remission of Order will be published by Winter Goose Publishing. Conditioned Response, Nazar Look, Resonance, Dreaming Big Publications. His novels include Extreme Change, Cogwheel Press, Flawed Connections, Black Rose Writing, and Call to Valor, Gnomon Pigs Productions. Acts of Defiance will be published by Dreaming Big Publications, Sudden Conflicts by Lilycat Publishers, and State of Rage by Rainy Day Reads Publishing. His short story collection, A Glimpse of Youth, Sweatshop Publications, Now I Accuse, and other stories will be published by Winter Goose Publishing. His original plays and translation of Moliere, Aristophanes, and Sophocles have been produced off-Broadway. His poetry, fiction, and essays have appeared in hundreds of literary magazines. He currently lives in New York City. Here is Gary Beck's story, Intrusion, as read by Nancy Beck, his wife. Intrusion by Gary Beck Corinne Jones' legs ached as she trudged through the cold evening rain to the bus stop on 3rd Avenue. The poorly designed bus shelter only partially shielded her from the slanting downpour. She waited like a weary farm animal whose labor was done, yet the barn was still far away, for the bus that would take her uptown and across 125th Street to Harlem. She held the bag of leftovers under her porous old blue cloth coat in an effort to keep them dry for her granddaughter, Sharina. The thought of that beautiful child helped her endure the life eroding fatigue that washed over her as relentlessly as the rain. After a twenty-minute wait that seemed forever, the bus finally arrived. Corinne hauled herself up the steps 
swiped her fair card through the slot and looked for a seat. She started up the aisle and saw Betty Ann, an older black woman who worked as a maid for the Swintons, a wealthy white family who were friends of her employers. Shortly after she went to work for the parties, she met Betty Ann when they shared duties at an open house party. Betty Ann hated the Swintons, her and whites in general. She tried to infect Corinne with her prejudice and started to tell her how to steal from her employers. Corinne stopped her abruptly and refused to have anything to do with her after that. Over the years, Betty Ann had forgotten what caused her enmity, but she loathed Corinne and insulted her whenever they met. They often took the same bus home at night, and Betty Ann would greet her each time, You old bitch, fuck you. And Corinne would respond, You mean old hag. The ritual concluded. They would ignore each other the rest of the way. Corinne said a silent player of thanks that she got a seat, because she didn't know if she had the strength to stand all the way to her stop at St. Nicholas Avenue. She took the bag of leftovers from under her coat, made sure it wasn't wet, then stared out the window into the glistening city night without seeing anything. She remembered when she first started working for the parties as a maid, and Mrs. Party would inspect the leftovers bag to ensure that Corinne wasn't taking unauthorized cuts of meat. The degrading search after the humiliation of being given leftover charity still pained her. She shook her head to clear it of the unwelcome thoughts and focused on Sharina. Corinne had been taking care of her granddaughter since she was seven, when her father was killed in a drive-by shooting. The unfairness of her son's death was still an ache in her heart. LaShawn had been a good boy, then a good man, raising his daughter after his wife died of cancer. He was on his way home from work, just passing the corner where the drug dealers distributed the poison that was destroying so many of her people, when a car pulled up and gangbangers began firing. According to the policeman, who told Sharina about her father's death when she was the only one he found at home, he died instantly. The police assumed that LaShawn was there for a drug buy and remained skeptical of Corinne's claim of his innocence, no matter how much she insisted that her son didn't use drugs. The awful memories were beginning to overwhelm her, and she said a silent prayer that sent them away. She sat there stolidly for a few minutes, as the bus rolled past the luxurious shops and restaurants that mocked the economically challenged, who couldn't afford the prices of the new economy, or the old for that matter. She had willed herself long ago not to want things that she could never have, and that way she was never tempted to steal. She didn't know if this made her a good person, but it made her an honest one. She had also learned to accept the unacceptable for the sake of her beloved granddaughter. The bus passed 96th Street, and the shabbier stores and buildings sagged drearily in the corrosive rain. Corinne brooded about the last-minute instructions she received from her employer just as she was leaving. Mrs. Party told her, in that false, friendly tone of equality, that she always used with Corinne. The family will be going to West Hampton tomorrow morning, so you'll have to be here early. We'll come back Sunday evening, and we'll drop you at 125th Street, where you catch your bus. Corinne had assumed, since it had been cold in early October, that they wouldn't be going to the house in West Hampton again until spring. The Yankee weatherman betrayed her with a treacherous forecast of temperature in the 70s. She hated going to West Hampton. She had to sit in the front seat with the chauffeur, Reggie, who listened to gangster rap on his headset and never talked to her. Her only day off was Sunday, so now that was lost. To make it worse, she couldn't bring Serena, because she had a karate tournament that Sunday. The endless demands of the weekend sent a shudder of dread through her. The parties didn't bring the cook on weekends, so Corinne had to help in the kitchen and clean them up afterwards. Between the parties and their guests, they soiled more dishes, cups, glasses, and silverware 
than an army battalion just off field rations. And Reggie, who did the lawns and cool, would never dream of helping. Her only consolation was that Sharina would start college next September with a full scholarship. Once she was away at school, maybe Corinne could think about another job. The bus started up the long hill to Harlem. Sometimes she wished that the hill was much higher so they could look down on the rich folks below. Maybe then, if there were race riots and the hooligans could roll things down on the rich and not just destroy the poverty community. She shook her head and sent the bad thoughts away and pictured her granddaughter. Sharina was the light of her life, a wonderful girl who bubbled with joy, who was bright, talented, and an honor student bound for Harvard and a better future. The bus turned on 125th Street, stopped, and some noisy black youths wearing red bandanas on their heads swaggered on, shaking raindrops on the other passengers, daring them to object. Corinne looked straight ahead when they tried to meet people's eyes, and they went to the back of the bus, boombox blasting curses and anger. Corinne knew about gang colors. Her daughter Tabitha had run with a gang. Corinne had tried to stop her, but couldn't overcome the violent gang allure that had eclipsed her dull, demanding days of school. In a desperate effort to stave off the inevitable, Corinne sent her to stay with relatives in North Carolina. Run-ins with the law and confrontations with the neighbors brought her back to Harlem, where she was beyond control. Her boyfriend turned her on to drugs, and when her habit became too expensive, he put her in the street as a prostitute to pay for the white powder of obliteration. Sometime between tricking and shooting up, AIDS arrived, and Tabitha slowly rotted away, decayed within and without, giving the gift of death to anyone who entered her wasted body. Then one day she didn't come home and was never heard from again. Corinne never found out what happened to her. She said a silent prayer for her lost daughter, pushed the stop signal, and went to the rear exit so she wouldn't have to see Betty Ann. Just before she got off the bus, Corinne risked a glance at the gang boys sprawled in the back, echoing the rap lyrics, yelling and cursing. Their red cotton bandanas reminded her of the field hands picking cotton, who her mama had told her about. They were called handkerchief heads because of the cloth they wore to protect them from the sun. She couldn't help thinking that these violent boys were just as much slaves as the darkies of the past they so despised, except their master wore a different suit of greed. One of the boys noticed her staring at them. What you looking at, old black lady? She turned away and scuttled off the bus, afraid that they might come after her and hurt her. As the bus drove away, the boy raised his middle finger at her, but she ignored it and quickly walked home. The climb up five flights of stairs was more tiring than usual, but as she got to her door, the image of her granddaughter raised her flagging spirits. Sharina was there, safe, sitting at the table doing her homework. Corinne's usual fear for the girl's well-being evaporated temporarily. Hi, Grandma. You look tired. The kiss and loving hug rekindled her energy. I'm all right. Mrs. Party told me we're going to West Hampton in the morning, and it just wore me down a bit. Why can't that woman hire someone out there for the weekend? She couldn't care less about your welfare. There are worse employers than Mrs. Party. At least she pays me for the extra day now. It's not fair, Grandma. You don't get any benefits, and if you get sick, they won't help. They're so selfish. Why are they always intruding in our lives? It don't do no good to fret about them. I brought you dinner. Why don't you eat and forget them? I hate eating their leftovers. I know, but it's good food. Next year, you'll be away at college and this'll be over. You'll still be working for them. We'll see. Once you're taken care of, I can do something else. Oh, Grandma, you've done so much for me. You're a treasure, Tile. Now eat while I go lie down.
the warm glow of Sharina's appreciation revived her, and instead of going to bed, she turned on the television set. It was the one-month anniversary of the World Trade Center disaster. She said a silent prayer for all the people killed that terrible day. The news was mostly about the bombing attacks on Afghanistan. After a humorous commercial that didn't amuse her, the big story was the third case of anthrax in Florida. It had become a criminal investigation since they discovered that the source was man-made. All the talk of biological attack by terrorists scared her, and she hoped that the government would capture or kill them before they killed more Americans. She understood that the people in those Arab countries were poor and oppressed, but they shouldn't be allowed to murder innocent people. Her neighbor's husband died in the attack on the World Trade Center on September 11th. He worked in the kitchen of that famous restaurant that was so high up, and he didn't come down. He never did anything to Osama bin Laden. Sharina finished her homework and came in and sat with her. What are you watching, Grandma? One of those blonde-haired ladies on CNN is telling us that we don't have to worry about anthrax. Now she's really got me worried. There's nothing much we can do tonight. Tomorrow I'll ask Dr. Fairstone about it, and he'll tell me what we should do. Now let's talk about something else. Corinne nodded in agreement. I was just thinking about how I used to take you with me to West Hampton when you was a little girl. I always hated going there, Sharina said. Those party kids were so stuck up that when their friends were visiting, they'd just ignore me or order me around like a servant. But when they didn't have anyone else to play with, they'd behave as if those other humiliating things never happened. Sometimes I wish they drowned. She looked at Corinne as if expecting her to be shocked, but she just smiled sadly. I know they didn't treat you right, but I couldn't leave you alone back here in Harlem. You were just too young. I didn't like it any more than you did. Those party kids are as selfish and inconsiderate as their parents, but I had no choice. I understood that even then, Grandma, and it wasn't always awful. Sometimes Wesley behaved all right when no one else was around. It was that Amelia who really got me mad. One day she decided to play Gone with the Wind, and she wanted me to be Mammy. When I refused, she complained to her mama, who told me I was being uncooperative. I told her that it was racially degrading for me to play Mammy, but I'd play Scarlett O'Hara if Amelia insisted on playing. Corinne laughed. I remember that. It was one of those few times when Mrs. Party was at a loss for words. How old were you then? I was eleven. I was so proud of you when you said that. Sharina smiled. Thanks, Grandma. Things got worse when I was thirteen and my body started developing. Reggie was always watching me. Even Mr. Party looked at me. And Wesley was always trying to touch me when we went swimming. I saw that. I was so happy when Dr. Fairstone got you that assistant counselor's job at the girls' camp the next summer. Me too. I wasn't going to let any of them near me, and I know it would cost you your job if it was an incident. We would have managed, child. I know, Grandma, but it would have been a problem, and I'm glad it worked out. When Dr. Fairstone hired me next year as a part-time assistant after school, I started learning so much about medicine that I decided to be a doctor. I'm so grateful to him. Sharina didn't want her grandmother to feel neglected because she praised the doctor and said lovingly, You're the best grandma in the whole world. Someday when I'm a successful doctor, I'm going to take care of you. I'll buy you a beautiful house and nice furniture and nice clothes. I don't need those things, child. I have you and the Lord. But you've helped me with everything. You got me the job with Dr. Fairstone and the job at Wendell's funeral parlor. I'm still sorry I did that. I don't know how you can work at that nasty place. The thought of you handling all those dead bodies makes my skin crawl. It's safe, Grandma. 
and what I learned there will help me in medical school. Now let's talk about something else. I want to do something wonderful for you. Well, there is one thing. What? When I die, I want to be buried someplace special. Oh, Grandma, you're going to live a long time yet. That may be, but that's what I want. Then that's what you'll get. You're an angel. Now give me a kiss and let's go to bed. It's getting late. Sharina didn't think of their conversation again, and her senior year of high school sped by in a welter of activities. Between school, her two part-time jobs, karate practice, and her new boyfriend, Sharina was too busy to spend much time with her grandmother. Soon, graduation day arrived, and former President Bill Clinton, in a gesture to his Harlem neighbors, was the guest of honor and handed out diplomas. Corinne almost burst with pride when Sharina delivered the valedictory and President Clinton shook her hand. Then Sharina was off to Harvard for the Early Access Pre-Med Studies program that would put superior students on a fast track. Sharina's scholarship covered dorm, board, books, fees, and tuition, so Corinne didn't have to worry about how she'd manage her way from home. For the first time since the death of her son, the burden of responsibility for her precious granddaughter was gone. She could finally start to think about what to do with her life. Sharina wrote often for the first month or two, but when the first semester started, her workload was enormous, and she added to it with a part-time job in the anatomy lab maintaining the cadavers. She thrived on the challenges and loved the sheltered enclave of the university. She wrote Corinne that she had enough money to come home for Thanksgiving. She took the train from Boston on November 21st, avoiding flying like many Americans. She got home about 9 p.m., unlocked the door, and found her beloved grandma lying on the floor. She screamed, Grandma, and rushed to her, but she was dead. Corinne's body was cold and stiff, so Sharina knew she had been dead for a while. She gently placed the lifeless head in her lap and cried silent tears that burned her cheeks. As soon as she was able to stop crying, she phoned Dr. Fairstone and told him the sad news. He said he'd be there right away, and the sound of his kindly voice set her crying again. He got there in five minutes and quickly examined Corinne. She's been dead for about ten to twelve hours. My poor grandma. If only I was here for her. I might have gotten her to the hospital in time. Dr. Fairstone shook his head. It wouldn't have helped. She had a massive coronary that killed her instantly. Did she suffer? No, dear. She didn't feel a thing. Are you sure? Yes. He covered Corinne with a blanket and turned to Sharina. What kind of arrangements do you want to make? I don't know. I don't have any money. He patted her arm reassuringly. I'll have Mr. Wendell take her to his funeral parlor and we'll work out the details later. Mr. Wendell agreed to pick up the body at 9 a.m. Dr. Fairstone made sure that Sharina was all right and offered her a sedative. I don't need anything, thanks. Then I'll see you in the morning. Call me if you need me. Sharina sat there quietly for a while, then walked through the apartment, idly touching some of her grandmother's things. She noticed the red light flashing on the answering machine and retrieved the first message. This is Mrs. Party, Kareem. I'm very disappointed that you didn't come to work. We have so many preparations for Thanksgiving that I really can't manage without you. Please call me. Sharina wanted to scream, but controlled herself and listened to the second message. I don't know where you are, Kareem, but it's very irresponsible of you to leave me in the lurch like this. Call me at once. Sharina felt a blaze of hate rush through her, and she dug her nails into her palms until her hands turned white. It took Sharina a few minutes to bring herself under control. Then she played the third message. I realize you just don't care what happens to us. 
After all the years you worked for us, I expected a little more consideration. The rage she felt was ice cold as she reached for the phone and dialed the party's number. When Mrs. Party answered in that detached, haughty voice that always suggested tennis whites, she said, This is Sharina. Before she could say anything else, Mrs. Party interrupted. Where is that grandmother of yours? Doesn't she know how important this holiday is? Sharina took a deep breath. My grandmother is dead, Mrs. Party. I really don't appreciate your humor at a time like this. Listen to me, you spoiled, self-centered... What did you call me? I told you she's dead. She died of a heart attack. Now do you have anything to say? There was a brief silence. Then Mrs. Party said, Well, that's too bad. I guess I'll just have to call a temporary agency. Sharina slammed the phone down in disgust. She didn't sleep at all that night. Every few hours, she went into the living room and looked at the face of the only person in the world who loved her. Corinne looked older than she remembered, but more at peace, as if the stress of her responsibilities was over. Sharina whispered lovingly, You are so good, Grandma. I'm so sorry that I didn't have the chance to do things for you. She cried for a little while, then lay down to rest. Her thoughts kept coming back to the telephone messages from Mrs. Party and the infuriating phone call that followed. She knew what the parties were like, sheltered by wealth, insulated from the economic pressures that ordered the lives of the less privileged and unaware of the needs of others. It wasn't that she expected them to be moved by the death of a black servant, which she now understood was only a mere inconvenience to them. It outraged her that Mrs. Party couldn't acknowledge that a person who worked for her for so many years had some significance. She decided that she'd give Mrs. Party another chance and call her in the morning, once Grandma was at the funeral parlor. Mr. Wendell came for Corinne in the morning and invited Sharina to ride with him in the hearse. She declined and instead walked the few blocks. She felt remote from the people around her, who were going about their business as if the best person in the whole world hadn't left her. She couldn't tell if the isolation she was feeling was from loss or numbness, but she seemed to be moving invisibly through the life around her. Dr. Fairstone and Mr. Wendell were waiting for her when she got to the funeral parlor. Mr. Wendell led her into the Heavenly Rest Chapel. You just sit here and I'll bring your grandmother in. You'll treat her nicely, won't you, Mr. Wendell? Yes, dear. She was my friend. Why don't you think about what you want done with her remains? She turned to Dr. Fairstone in despair. I don't know what to do with Grandma. There, there, he said. We'll put our heads together and figure out something. She sat there in a daze without any sense of time passing until Mr. Wendell wheeled in a gurney. On it was one of the showroom coffins that contained her tiny grandma. She walked to the gleaming mahogany casket and looked down at the face that would never smile lovingly at her again. Tears gushed from her eyes and she silently vowed, I don't know how, Grandma, but I'll find some way to make your burial special. Dr. Fairstone waited patiently until she stopped crying. We have to talk about the burial now. Did Corinne have any insurance? No, sir. Does she have any family or friends who might help? I think we're the only ones. What about her employer? You mean the parties? I didn't know their name. Mrs. Party told me that it was very inconsiderate for Grandma to die at holiday time, Sharina said bitterly. Perhaps they'll help with the funeral expense. I don't think I can count on them for anything. I'll contribute a coffin and hearse to the cemetery, Mr. Wendell said, but I can't cover the expense for the plot and headstone. Thank you for your offer, but I don't have any money. What if we cremate her? 
I'll do it for free. I couldn't do that to her, Shavina said. I'll call the parties again and ask for help. She phoned Mrs. Party, who sounded impatient at being bothered. My grandma didn't have any insurance, Mrs. Party. I wonder if you could help me with the funeral expenses? There was a long silence. I don't think that will be possible. Sharina tried to contain her indignation. She worked for you for a long time. Don't you feel any sense of obligation? We'll be happy to send flowers, Mrs. Party said coldly. Once you tell us where the service will be held, that's all we can do. But I don't have the money to bury her properly, Sharina confided. I'm sure you'll manage. There must be some place you can get help, like the Welfare Bureau or the NAACP. Sharina felt like strangling the ignorant, condescending woman. You're some piece of work, Mrs. Party. My grandma slaved for you for years, and that's all you can say? You can keep your stinking flowers. She hung up the phone without waiting for a reply and pounded the wall in frustration while tears of rage poured from her eyes. Dr. Fairstone and Mr. Wendell found her in the office, sitting on the floor, slumped against the wall, crying. I guess they wouldn't help you, Dr. Fairstone said gently. We'll think of something, my dear. Why don't you wash your face and meet us in the chapel? Sharina went to the bathroom, rinsed with cold water, and pulled herself together. When she rejoined her friends, they were discussing the funeral options. Mr. Wendell has outlined the most practical arrangements, Dr. Fairstone said. Cremation or burial at Potter's Field. What's that? It's where indigents are buried in a cemetery on Staten Island, Mr. Wendell answered. Sharina was horrified. I can't do that to my grandma. Dr. Fairstone tried to reason with her. I understand that this isn't desirable, but there don't seem to be other choices. I won't do that to her. I promised her something special. Let me think about it. I have to get back to my patients. I'll come back when office hours are over. Thanks, Dr. Fairstone. I really appreciate your help. I wish I could stay with you, but my patients are worried about anthrax or other biological attacks. I'll see you later. I'll walk you to the door, Mr. Wendell said. Sharina sat in the chapel, brooding about her lack of choices and looking at the coffin that held her beloved grandma. She couldn't come up with any solutions to the problem. Every time she tried to concentrate, hateful images of the parties kept intruding. Mrs. Party's callous indifference ripped through her with stabs of rage. A cold fury channeled her thoughts and helped focus her mind. She remembered a party family funeral that she went to as a child. Her grandma was compelled to give up their Sunday and attend, and she took her along because there was no one to leave her with. She vaguely recollected a long ride to a Long Island cemetery that seemed like an enchanted forest with clumps of large old oak and maple trees that lined the walks. She had asked wonderingly, Who lives in those big stone houses, Grandma? She understood now that her grandma had carefully considered her answer. Some people are put there by their families when they die. Will we go there when we die? No, child. Only the rich people go there. Where will we go, Grandma? We don't have to worry about that for a long time. The picture of her grandma's sweet, loving face when she said that brought more tears to Sharina's eyes, but her mind was crystal clear. Suddenly, a wild idea flashed through her. I'll put Grandma in the party family mausoleum. At first, it sounded crazy. But the more she considered the idea, the more comforting it became. She basked in the wave of pleasure that rolled over her as she imagined Grandma resting in the splendid family tomb of the parties. After a few moments, 
more practical thoughts seeped in. How would she get Grandma to the cemetery? How would she get her into the mausoleum? Did she need a coffin? She had never been in a mausoleum, so it was a place of mystery. Did the bodies lie around in piles or on tables, in boxes? Frustration raced through her for her ignorance. She tried to control her swirling emotions and decided to ask Mr. Wendell about mausoleums, but not tell him about her far-fetched idea right away. Mr. Wendell was on the phone when she walked into his office, and he gestured to her to sit down. She fidgeted tensely as he wheedled someone in the medical examiner's office about the interpretation of his contract to inter John and Jane Doe bodies for the city. When business was slow, he was eager for the extra income from indigent funerals. If business was good, he didn't want to waste time on the low-fee jobs. His special efforts to befriend the clerks who assigned the jobs included cash, gifts, and other incentives. He began to trust Sharina after she had worked for him for a while, and he kept few secrets of his day-to-day operations from her. He made exaggerated funny faces for her benefit as he talked, and she managed a weak smile of appreciation for his efforts to ease her sorrow. He finally hung up the phone and shook his head. My mama would turn over in her grave if she heard me arguing all the time about dead bodies. <laughs> she looked at him intently, considering how to present her wild idea, but he made it easy. Have you decided what to do about your grandmother yet? he asked in his professional voice of comfort. I've thought about it, and I've come up with a plan that I want to tell you about. But please, don't interrupt me till I'm done, okay? Sure, go ahead. I considered the choices and couldn't accept them because I promised Grandma a special burial. And at first, I didn't know what to do because I didn't have any money. And I got madder and madder at the parties for not caring about her. And I remembered that they had a big family mausoleum and I decided I want to put Grandma into their mausoleum without their knowing. And what? You said you wouldn't interrupt. Where'd you get the crazy notion? Can I finish? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I need your help to do it. Girl, you're out of your mind. That's the only way I can think of to do something special for her. He stared at her strangely, then burst into laughter. In all my years in mortuary science, that's the craziest thing I ever heard. Why? Once she's in there, no one will know. It's just a matter of putting her there. You should know how to do that. You want me to do it? He asked in amazement. Who else? You're her friend. I'll help you. Nobody else has to know. Do you have any idea what you're asking? Yes. If I had another choice, I'd do it. What about Dr. Fairstone? I won't tell him. He's a wonderful man, but he's set in his ways and I don't think he'd approve. Are you telling me I'm not ethical? No, Mr. Wendell. He's old and wouldn't understand. You're a smart businessman. You know how complicated everything is. You're a cunning devil. You think some flattery will get me to do it? I'm asking you as her friend. He got up and paced behind his desk. Let me think about it. A wave of gratitude raced through her. She rushed to him and kissed him on the cheek. Thanks, Mr. Wendell. I knew you'd help. I didn't agree yet. Now be quiet and let me think. He sat down at his desk and leaned his head on his hands. She waited quietly until he asked, Are you sure this is what you want to do? Do you have a better idea? No. Then this is what I want. Let me tell you what's involved. We got to get the death certificate from Dr. Fairstone and tell him you decided to cremate her. The next day we go to, what's the name of the cemetery? I don't know, but it's the party family mausoleum. That's all right. I can get the information on the internet. Then we drive there in a private car 
hope one of my batch of keys will open the mausoleum door, find a good shelf, put her in, and then get out without anyone noticing us. That doesn't sound too hard. He snorted. Right. And what if we get caught? I'll take all the blame. He shook his head. You're as hard-headed as your grandma. Then he laughed loudly. But I like the idea of double-dipping. I'll do it. Now that she had help and a plan, a feeling of euphoria took over, and everything seemed dreamlike and remote, as if it were happening to someone else. When Dr. Fairstone came back that evening, she told him that she had decided on cremation. He sat with her for a while, and his presence was comforting. She hugged him when he said goodnight, and thanked him for being a good friend. Mr. Wendell suggested that she go home and sleep for a while, but she was too revved to leave. She looked over his shoulder while he searched the net until he located the cemetery. He explained to her that they couldn't put Corinne in a coffin because they wouldn't be able to manage it by themselves and they might be noticed if he brought extra help. He went to put Corinne in a plastic body bag and Sharina said she could do everything else but she couldn't put her grandma in the bag. Mr. Wendell left her in the office while he made the final preparations and she dozed off. She woke up in the morning with that odd sense of detachment that sometimes occurs when waking up in a strange place. Mr. Wendell bought fresh coffee and a donut for her that she devoured voraciously. They left the funeral parlor for Grandma's last ride at 10 a.m. The traffic was light, and within a few minutes they crossed the Triborough Bridge. The day was warm and clear, and the sun glistened on the dirty face of the East River, concealing the detritus and pollution bequeathed to the waterways of America. She looked without seeing as they rolled along the Long Island Expressway and barely noticed when they turned into the cemetery. It took a few moments to register that they had arrived. She looked around curiously and found that the fabulous burial ground of memory was just another cemetery. Mr. Wendell consulted a map of the cemetery that he had downloaded from the Internet and drove straight to the party mausoleum. No one paid any attention to them. He got out of the car, walked to the massive metal door with his large ring of keys, tried some, and in a few moments he swung the door open. He looked around carefully and made sure no one was watching them. He went to the car, motioned her to come help him, then opened the trunk and removed the body bag. They carried it to the mausoleum and put it down on the stone floor. Mr. Wendell checked the shelves and found one that contained Beatrice Party, 1882 to 1957. He opened the decorative marble panel, then the wooden door. They picked up the body bag and slid it behind Beatrice's coffin where it couldn't be seen. If you want to say anything, do it quickly, Mr. Wendell said urgently. We need to get out of here without being discovered. She stood there silently and finally whispered, Goodbye, Grandma. I love you. Mr. Wendell closed the shelf door and quickly replaced the marble panel. He rushed her out the door, locked it, hurried them to the car, then drove out of the cemetery. Once they were on the highway, he yelled triumphantly, Nobody saw us! What do you think of that, kid? I don't believe how easy it was. It's like anything else in the world. If you know what you're doing and go about it naturally as if you belong, nobody notices. I'll never forget this, Mr. Wendell. If there's ever any way to repay you, I will. That's all right, girl. It was a rush doing that. You don't owe me anything. For the rest of the ride, he babbled on, keyed up by his adventure and didn't notice her silence. She sat there quietly, locked in memories of her beloved grandma. Just as they got to the glittering bridge that led them back to Harlem, she thought, I did it, Grandma. I made your burial special. Now you'll rest in that grand stone mansion for the dead with the parties and not have to clean up after them. I hope you won't mind being there. It's the best I could do.
Thank you, thank you for slowing down and listening up with us today. As usual, I implore you to rate and review us on iTunes. And if you like this podcast and what we're doing, as Sarah Sally seems to, please spread the word about us. It would really help us a lot, and we'd appreciate it. Special thanks to Sarah Sally McElwain and Nancy Beck for reading the stories today. If you want to find out more about Writers Read NYC, go to writersreadnyc.com to check out their upcoming events. And also check out Gary Beck on Amazon. All or most of the publications he listed in his bio are available there, and they all have four or five star average reviews, so you should really check them out. Thanks as always, and I do mean always, even if I've forgotten the last few episodes, and I'm sorry about that, to our co-producer, Colleen Stewart, who's been doing all of our great social media work, so please check us out on Facebook and Twitter to see what she's doing. Also, don't forget to check us out on our website, secondhandpodcast.com, where you can learn about our guidelines for submitting your story. Please slow down and listen up with us again. Thanks.